everyone. Welcome to Febrile, a culture podcast about all things infectious disease. We use consult questions to dive into ID clinical reasoning, diagnostics, and antimicrobial management. I'm Sarah Dong, your host. We have another episode in our second edition of the Curious Congenital Conundrums. So this is the second of four. Don't forget to take a look back at episode 79. Let's welcome our host today. Hello, I'm very pleased to be here. My name is Fanula Ryan. Fanula or Finn has recently returned from working with Doctors Without Borders as a pediatrician in Yemen. She is a UK pediatric trainee and is starting her subspecialty training in pediatric infectious diseases this month at Great Ormond Street Hospital. Next, say hello to our discussant. Hello, thanks for having me. Um, looking forward to the discussion. My name is Alistair Bamford. Alistair is a pediatric infectious diseases consultant and specialty lead at Great Ormond Street Hospital for Children. He is also an honorary associate professor at University College London, Great Ormond Street Institute of Child Health in London. Well, as everyone's favorite culture podcast on Febrile, we like to ask about a little piece of culture. So something that uh, brings you happiness. Uh, what have you guys uh, enjoyed recently? Um, so I am training currently for a very long cycle, um, which is going to be 530 kilometers from Bristol to Paris. So it's far over six days and I am not a cyclist. Um, (laughs) and I'd like to say this is bringing me joy, but it's also (laughs) bringing me a lot of pain and a lot of early mornings. Um, but some joy, I've been on some nice cycles kind of out of London and, seen some countryside and been for some nice swims afterwards and that bit brings me joy so (laughs) love it yeah so I guess I'm usually based in London but I'm visiting New York at the moment and I uh, went and visited the New York Public Library in Manhattan yesterday and worked in there for a few hours which was a lovely experience and free which is great um, and and a really great resource for your city yeah it is beautiful in there Um, All right. Well, I will hand it over so we can talk about the case. Sure. So you're called first thing in the morning by the NICU team for your expertise on a four-day-old baby that was transferred to their care overnight. The male neonate is quite unwell with a significant coagulopathy, diminished urine output, hypotonia, lethargy, poor feeding and hypothermia. The NICU team is concerned about neonatal sepsis and have started the baby on meningitic doses of ampicillin and gentamicin, as well as acyclovir. On admission, oxygen desaturations to 70 were noted with feeding but no respiratory distress. Hepatosplenomegaly was found on on examination with a liver edge of 3 centimetres below the costal margin and a palpable spleen tip and a petechial skin rash. The baby boy was born at 37 weeks gestation with a birth weight of 2.86 kilos and no risk factors for sepsis. There were no maternal genital vesicles noted at at delivery. The pregnancy was unremarkable with normal serological screening for infections and normal antenatal ultrasounds. Investigations revealed an elevated ferritin of 63,748, ALT of 1,586, AST of 1,500 and LDH of 8,242, with low fibrinogen of 0.6 and hemoglobin of 89 and platelets of 19. Alistair, what is your differential diagnosis and what other teams would you suggest the NICU team contact? Thanks, Finn. Uh, Yeah, so a four-day-old boy 
that sounds very sick on the neonatal unit with what sounds like an infection when uh, when you first hear about it. But um, as you know, this is, this is a very common presentation. And when infectious diseases team get called in, it's because the neonatal team are worried that there's possibly something else going on that, that, that we, we might be missing. Um, neonatal sepsis is common and bacterial sepsis is, the, is, is, is equally common. Um, and uh, there's lots of features of that here, but, but I think the things that are sort of out of keeping are the severe transaminitis, the very raised LDH. Um, and, and so I think that in the first instance should have made the neonatal team think there might be something else going on. Um, and then you can sort of tell that they maybe think that there's something else going on because they've sent some slightly more specialized investigations thinking about alternative non-infectious diagnoses, haven't they? So they, they've, they've sent a ferritin, which you wouldn't tend to send as a first-line investigation in a septic neonate. Um, and uh, fibrinogen as well is not, a, I mean, it may be part of the coagulopathy screen, but they, they've focused in on that result. So, so it makes you think that they're already thinking of something else. And so bacterial infections are the first thing that springs to mind. And then obviously via, severe viral infections at this age. Um, you mentioned about vesicles not being present uh, at, at the time of delivery, um, but that's not needed for a, a severe de disseminated HSV. And that's really high up in my mind at the moment because that can present very much like this. Um, other viral infections should be in the back of your mind as well. And, and then rarer, I guess, non-infectious things we can think about and and the hints with the test they've sent is that the team are thinking about hlh or hemophagocytic lymphocytosis because some of those investigations are part of the diagnostic criteria for that and there's clinical features of that with the cytopenia with the hepatosplenomegaly and lab features of that as well so think of common things think of bacterial sepsis that's probably still the most likely but then thinking of rarer things such as viral sepsis and then non-infectious things as well in the back of our mind. And when we're starting to think about non-infectious things, which teams we bring in will depend on the blood picture. And I think it, it depends what teams you've got available to you, but we're very lucky in Great Ormond Street because we've got all of the teams on our doorstep, but they're usually only a phone call away as well if you are not, if you don't have them in your centre. And I'd be thinking about hematology, immunology, to think about primary HLH, and also metabolic presentations because that's that. this also could be a, a metabolic type illness. Great. So whilst the NICU team is setting up a multidisciplinary meeting, more information is gathered from the family. A detailed antenatal history reveals a maternal rash and fever four days before delivery that resolves spontaneously. The infant's three-year-old sibling subsequently developed cough, diarrhea and vomiting around the time of delivery, but also recovered spontaneously after a few days of illness. The parents travelled to California in the early part of the second trimester to visit family. There were no noted insect bites. The family does not consume any unpasteurised food. They have a dog and a cat at home. There are no farm animal exposures. There is no TB exposure. The mother continued sertraline throughout pregnancy. No drugs, alcohol or toxin ingestion during pregnancy. Given this background history, which investigations would you request? Thank you for that inf additional information. I, I, I think you've brought in some more clues and more hints as to what we should be thinking about in terms of differential diagnosis and our, our next line investigations. As infectious diseases specialists, we like to think about unusual exposures and travel history, and that's been brought to our attention now. Um, and, um, 
and and the, the I think the really interesting thing there is the mention of the rash in the immediate run up to the the pregnant the delivery and also the illness in the sibling around the time of delivery as well, which is really making me now think of a of a perinatal infection that's affected the the, the mother and then the infant either congenitally or through postnatal transmission of an infection. So so we'll keep that in mind. The travel history to California, if we're, we're based in the UK, uh, I think we'd have to think about whether there was any unusual infections that we don't see in London that, that may be in California. I can't think of any at the top of my head that would present like this, but we'd maybe phone a friend about that. Um, and yeah, and so I think we're, we're moving on to the next step of thinking more about congenital infections as well as the po- postnatally acquired infections. And so we'd want to know about the, the mother's booking bloods. Was she screened it, 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 in the UK? We don't, we'd, we'd screen for HIV, hepatitis B and syphilis. Um, and so we'd know, like to know the results of those investigations. Was she investigated for any infections at any other time during the pregnancy? And then, and then, in terms of the infant, I think we, as well as the broad investigations for bacterial and viral sepsis, we've got to have the list of, of uh, some people would like to call scorch infections, where where we try and remember all of the congenital infections to look at, to look for that it might present like this. And I think it's, I think it's important to remember that, in my experience, pretty much any congenital infection can present a bit like HLH. So you, you've got to think of all of them, and, uh, but um, think of exposure and risk. Um, and and, and uh, I think the most likely ones would be a severe congenital CMV or a congenital syphilis that I've, I've seen pr- present like this. Um, but with that illness in the sibling and the rash presentation, then maybe something that's not, a, 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 not CMV or syphilis. And so, yeah thinking of other viral infections that could present like this is the next step for me as well. And I guess thinking about our other bacterial stuff as well still, because we still haven't excluded it. So making sure that if we can culture anything that is available to culture and is safe to culture, we talked about the coagulopathy, but uh, lumbar puncture if possible, swabs of anything that looks like it's infected. Yeah. So, so I mean, it, it, you've got you, as a PEDS ID specialist, you should have your framework for investigating the different um, types of infections. So, bacterial culture is your is your gold standard from as many sites as possible. Thinking about molecular testing, specific or broad range PCRs for bacteria from many as many sites as possible. Um, you just mentioned that they're very sick. You would maybe wouldn't want to do a lumbar puncture um, because of the, of the coagulopathy or a bone marrow aspirate for that reason, but thinking that you want to do them at all times and as soon as it's safe to do it, if it's still going to be useful, then then doing it. And then viral investigations, then obviously culture isn't as useful these days. So it's very much PCR-based assays or serological-based assays, depending on which infection you're looking for and then and in what, what sample. Um, uh, you've got your list of congenital infections and how to screen for them in both the mum's booking bloods and the, and the baby's bloods, um, thinking very rationally about which is the most important test to do on either of those individuals. Um, and then parasitic fungal, I think they're low in my list of things to do, but I would still have them in the back of my mind to think of if I didn't find a bacteria or a, or a virus with my first line screening. Yeah. And then... In terms of investigations, because we've, we're kind of thinking that we've got a, a pathogen that has triggered this very bad response in this baby, whether it's bad bacterial sepsis or whether it's kind of a host response that is out of 
the context of what we would normally expect to a more regular pathogen. What uh, we kind of we talked about involving immunology, and I suppose we would like to talk about a bit about maybe what kind of immune tests we might send, or what would what would we be looking for? I suppose in a baby like this. Can I ask you that question? Yeah, of course. So, I, I, full confession, I'm not an immunologist, but I know that I speak to them regularly and um, work very closely with them. So, I, I know that, that that they would be thinking in a in an HLH presenter if a, a clinical situation that was fulfilling the criteria of HLH, which uh, this this baby does seem to be approaching those criteria, then um, they would be thinking of sort of looking for for primary HLH and and tests that we do in our lab anyway would be a perforin, a granular release assay. Um, it's a boy, so looking for ZIAP and, and, and SAP. Um, and then um, they, we would debate about the utility of doing a bone marrow aspirate and how much information that would give us. But yeah, I, I, the more I learn about HLH and the diagnosis of it, and uh, prior to having a genetic confirmation of a diagnosis, it's I see it as slightly more of an art while, while you're looking, because because I'm always surprised by uh, getting, how often people get fixated on the HLH diagnostic criteria and how often our immunology or hematology colleagues will go, well, I've seen an HLH where that box wasn't ticked, but I still think this is a primary HLH, so we should manage as such until we have a genetic mm-hmm. confirmation. So so I think as ID specialists, if, if most of the audience are ID specialists, then, then I think it's our job to look for the the infection that might be driving or contributing to either a secondary HLH or an infection complicating a primary HLH. And then, yeah, leave it to our immunology and hematology yeah. colleagues to, to, to really scratch their heads about whether we need to get on and manage as a, as a severe HLH or we've got time to manage infection and see if things respond to infection management before leaping in with severe immune, sort of significant immunosuppression. Yeah, I think that's a really good point because you have to balance then all that also about how sick this baby is. And, and so clearly we're going to have immunology in our MDT, I think, whenever we're talking about a baby like this. Um, so we've called immunology and they helped us out with some investigations um, for primary congenital HLH, which demonstrated a normal perforin, ZAP and ZIAP expression, as well as normal granulocyte release assay. The hematology team are considering a bone marrow biopsy, but as we talked about, the coagulopathy still currently prohibits this. Similarly, we're still not able to get an LP because of the coagulopathy. The remainder of the investigations suggested by the liver and immunology teams are pending. Uh, However, you're notified by the virology lab that the blood PCR was positive for enterovirus with a CT value of 27. The stool and pharyngeal PCR swabs also subsequently returned positive for enterovirus. Alistair, knowing this result, how does this now change your management? Thank you for that additional information. So I would uh, probably follow my immunology colleagues' opinion about whether that those tests that they have advised us to do exclude a, a primary HLH. We've done our bit and found an enterovirus, which is 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 great. Uh, I think it. it, it it, the, the clinical picture is consistent with a severe enterovirus infection in a child this age. 
and uh, it, I think it's 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 well, well it, it is well described that enterovirus can lead to a severe disseminated viral sepsis type picture with HH features as well. So it would make sense that this was an enterovirus infection. I think I'd like to pause there because I I, I didn't mention it earlier, but I, I I don't think you mentioned that the child was on acyclovir, and and I think that although this isn't now we're moving down the enterovirus path. This I've seen HSV present exactly like this, and time time is is very very valuable when you've got a disseminated severe HSV. So I think that although we've now got this enterovirus that we're working towards as the main causing organism, then I'd really like to make sure that I'm covering for HSV until we've proven that it's not HSV. Um, apologies if you've mentioned one way or the other already in the in the in the story, but I think I've. I've, I've seen HSV missed and HSV does present like this. So although we're talking about enterovirus, never forget HSV and cover it, cover for it in this clinical picture until you know it's not that. Anyway, back to enterovirus. So yeah, I think this is probably the most likely diagnosis. You mentioned that it was found with a CT value of 27 in blood. So it's definitely systemic infection. And you've also done stool and pharyngeal PCR swabs, which are positive on PCR as well. And I think before we move on to management, I think that's a really important learning point that that and my virology colleagues taught me this is a very early stage in my career, and I never forget to pass it on, is that enterovirus moves between compartments during the stages of an infection. So you, you need to look for enterovirus everywhere. Um, if you don't find it in blood, then it may be just in an in a nasal pharyngeal aspirate or a throat swab or a stool swab or a bronchial bronchial viola lavage, and so just because you don't find it in blood or CSF doesn't mean it's causing the severe disease that you're you're presented with. And so look for enterovirus everywhere at baseline. Um, and one thing that we always forget about in Great Ormond Street is that our normal stool enteric virus panel doesn't include enterovirus. So people think they've sent enterovirus when they send the stool virology, but they haven't. So make sure in your institution that you know what's in your enteric stool viral panel. And if enterovirus isn't in there, ask your lab to do it as well. So that's one learning point that I always try and remember with enterovirus. But when we're thinking about management now, then that's a bit more of a gray area, isn't it? So I, I, I think the evidence base for what to do in severe enterovirus infection in a child this age, be it congenital infection or postnatally acquired infection, the evidence base of it, uh, for any therapeutics being a great benefit is not really there. There's 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 approaches that you can think about. Um, you can think about whether you want to manage the virus with an antiviral or whether you want to manage the inflammation with an anti-inflammatory medication or immunomodulatory approach. And so I guess if we if we start thinking about antivirals, then the cupboard is pretty bare for enterovirus, isn't it? For, for licensed agents that, that have good evidence of benefit, um, people will always mention uh, historic agents that have been tried and investigated and showed some evidence, such as Placonorel, but as far as I'm aware, that's not very widely available. I don't have personal experience of using it, especially not in this context. There's newer agents such as Picapavir, which um, I haven't 
seen used in congenital enterovirus personally, but it has been used in severe neonatal enterovirus in the UK on a compassionate basis. And I think the jury's out about whether that's having benefit or not. Um, and I think studies need to be done to know whether that's a beneficial thing to do. And I think if if you're if you're thinking about using an antiviral, I think all of them will gonna, are going to be an experimental approach. So you should have full MDT discussion about that. All drugs and therapeutic committee or or whatever is you have equivalent to that in your institution and ethical and consent arrangements around that experimental approach. So antivirals, there's not much around, but you could think about trying some of the uh, agents that have in vitro and and sort of case reports of use. And then in terms of immunomodulation, I think the most most commonly used agent that's reached for is IVIG. Um, And so thinking about the risk benefit of using that involving your IVIG panel, if you do have one of those within your institution about thinking about the risk benefit of doing that. Um, But to be honest, I haven't seen it make groundbreaking changes when you've when you've in, instituted its use, um, but it's something that can be considered. And then, I think other immunomodulatory agents. I think we're learning more and more about the balance between ongoing infection and the inflammatory response to it, um, and the, the 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 balance we strike with uh, uh, managing the abnormal host response to the infection. And I, and I think we're getting more and more confident with using anti-inflammatory or immunomodulatory approaches in the context of ongoing infection um, if we've got evidence of really damaging inflammatory response. So I think, again, I mean, in Great Ormistry, we've got the luxury of the, all these specialties around us, but involving the full MDT about whether there's enough damage being done by the inflammation to warrant an anti, additional anti-inflammatory approach, albeit, again, it would be an experimental approach to do that but thinking about which pathways are activated by the by the viral or whatever infection you've, you're dealing with, and which agents are have the least side effects, are the most easily reversible, have the most uh, shortest half life, and things like that, you may reach with your colleagues for, for a sort of narrower spectrum biologics in this kind of context, so a partial management of an NAS or HLH type thing, anakinra, those sorts of things, or steroids is a more sort of one that we know more about that we have more comfort in using and are very used to using and definitely patients that have had a severe infection with features of hlh that don't meet the criteria for hlh but they're very very sick and there's definitely inflammation that you need to switch off we have used steroids in that context and balanced the the infection with the inflammation it's easier if you've got an antiviral in there as well because that makes you feel confident that you're treating 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 both at the same time um so Anyway, MDT approach is crucial. This is a very rare presentation, but a very severe presentation. So thinking about antivirals, what you've got evidence for, probably not much, but you could think of some things. And anti-inflammatories, what would be the most likely and least harmful thing to try um, if you're an extremist? And then is there a chance, do you think, and how, do you see children like this, that um, with good supportive care, presumably we do see children like this, with good supportive care, and not needing antivirals or anti-inflammatories, they might improve themselves? Or do you think that we need to kind of be a bit more aggressive, I suppose, in managing it? Yeah, I, I think I think, I think think the supportive care is the crucial bit. And, and uh, I'm, for 
the two decades that I've been doing this, then then expert supportive care has probably been the thing that's made the most difference in, in infections infections like this. Um, and and it's very difficult to know whether novel or experimental approaches have made much difference. And I think the the the, the, the expert critical care is key. I think it's it's about watching the trajectory of the illness as well very closely and and sort of yeah if if the if the inflammation's turning in the corner by itself then maybe hold off trying an anti-inflammatories um if 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 the virus the ct values are reducing by themselves or, or the ct values are increasing so the viral loads are reducing by themselves then why would you reach for an antiviral and to be honest, all, although I've spoken about these anti-inflammatory and antiviral approaches that we always will have in the back of my mind, I think more often we've just stuck to supportive care because that's all we know that there's evidence for. Yeah. There's a lot of pressure though, isn't there? there, there yeah. You always think you've got to do something and you've got to really take stock. And every, the, the intensive care teams, the family, the, the other specialties that are involved, as infection specialists, we get asked, oh, there's an infection there. We need to do something. We, we must do something because this is such an ill child. And it's our job to really take stock, look at the evidence, look at the risk-benefit of any approach that we're taking that doesn't have a good evidence base and make sure we're doing the best thing for our, our, the children we're looking after um, based on that mm. information. So checking your kind of supportive care and then monitoring your like HLH markers, your ferritin, LDH, your full blood count kind of at least twice a week, I suppose, is kind of useful trajectory or every day, depending on how sick they are. Oh, I think if they're that critically unwell, then you want to be monitoring the HLH markers twice a day until they start improving. So uh, yeah, obviously thinking of a young infant not wanting to draw too many blood draws so that they need replacement blood but at the same time you you, you really uh, it's, it's hour by hour management because because i mean ferritin can double in a in a day and if it's going like that then you know you probably do have to step in with some anti-inflammatory approach probably yeah thank you um so alistair in retrospect looking back at that history we've talked a bit about a few of these but which aspects of the history support the diagnosis of a congenital enteroviral infection the I think the key, the key thing for me is a sort of viral illness around the time of delivery and a, a sibling that was unwell at the time with a sort of non-specific diarrheal febrile rashy illness as well sounds a bit like an enterovirus type infection as well doesn't it and then uh, you've got a clinical syndrome that's w- relatively well described to present like this with multi-system involvement and a viral sepsis type picture with evolving HLH type picture and then you've got your PCR result obviously <laughs> that um, gives you the, the major clue. Um, yeah, I think I think it's it, it's pretty clear that that's what's going on here. But there, there was there was clues from the history that it that it may be something like that. I think you're right. Yeah. Um, and then, how common are congenital enterovirus infections? Uh, well, again, in 20 years, I've seen two. So in, in uh, so not. I don't know if that makes it in ID. That's not very common, I guess, but globally, um, I don't think it's it's very common either. I mean, postnatally acquired severe enterovirus is very rel- very common. I think, in, well, <laughs> it depends where you work, but I think it's it's it, it's common enough that it would be seen in most general pediatric settings 
once a year, I guess, and then in specialized centers more than that. So, so I think that I would always emphasize to neonatal colleagues or general pediatric colleagues when they see neonatal sepsis to always think about enterovirus because it's common enough to be able to be doing that test on, on most or pericovirus as well because it can present pretty similarly. And then in terms of congenital enterovirus, I'd say only a couple of times that I've, I've seen it. Um, there's case reports in the, in, in the literature, um, but I, I think it's it's rare, not even common enough for there to be case series. Um, I think I think it's difficult to know quite often whether it's postnatally acquired or congenital, but this this does this case does sound consistent with congenital with the maternal illness and the sibling illness prior to the baby being born and that very early onset. Um, one thing we haven't really talked about that maybe it might be worth discussing is just highlighting some of the complications that um, babies like this can get in terms of which organs can be involved. I think we've seen that this baby's kind of got cytopenia and inflammation, but there's not actually much detail about kind of um, if there's any brain involvement or cardiac involvement or anything like that. And I wondered if you could maybe elaborate a bit on that, please. Yeah, it's very much a multi-system disease. So I think it, you name the organ system, it can can affect it. I think the, the transaminitis is, is pretty good clue about a viral type uh, severe systemic infection going on. Uh, a severe transaminitis in any neonate makes me think of viral things going up the differential list above bacterial things. Um, myocarditis again is uh, enterovirus seems to be quite heart heart tropic. So so yeah, we'd, we'd be keen to do cardiac enzymes and an echo in this child if they've not been done, and then lumbar puncture at some point. Um, I expect the CSF is pretty likely to be positive, and so we'd want to follow up as we would any child that had a viral meningitis or encephalitis, irrespective of what the, if we do an LP or what the LP shows. Um, I, I Yeah, I think if, if there were seizures or abnormal CSF, then you may think about doing CN, CNS imaging as well. Um, uh, but I think you don't necessarily have to do that in all such cases, but you probably, yeah, I think you will probably would in such an Ill, Ill child with the coagulopathy and everything, not just looking for viral Impact, but impacts of the coagulopathy. So CNS imaging, um, you can get thrombi in the in the in the in the hepatic venous system as well. I think with severe enterovirus, so looking for that with ultrasound. Um, I guess renal involvement not so much, um, but obviously, sort of any neonate can have pre renal renal involvement. But I'm not sure the virus itself can cause is commonly causes much direct renal. Uh, uh, effects um and then yeah the indirect effects of the bone marrow suppression and, and coagulopathy uh, uh and the cytopenias um need to be borne in mind as well uh yeah i think that's the main thing is gi involvement di- diarrhea in older siblings older, older children not so much in neonates i guess great thank you um are there any infection precautions that we would need to take for the team that are kind of managing this patient in hospital? Um, yeah, so I think if you if you know you've got an enterovirus, then it's contact droplet precautions um, until you know the, the child is is negative. Probably um, you don't know if this is a normal host; they may well continue excreting enterovirus for a prolonged period. So, I think we'd we'd be keen to always ask the advice of our infection prevention control colleagues rather than making the decision independently 
speak to them early, say you've got this case, you say it's severe and, and, and they may be immunocompromised and what would be the precautions to take and for how long and how to step down those precautions safely would be key. With this case, antiviral medication and IVIG were both considered, but the infant started to make a clinical recovery with improvement in the hematological parameters and so a supportive management approach was undertaken. Enterovirus sequencing identified Coxsackie B virus type 3. Enterovirus viral load in the blood gradually decreased and was undetectable by 12 days of life. Enterovirus PCR of the maternal stool was also positive and found to also be Coxsackie B type 3. The baby boy was discharged on day 14 of life and scheduled for follow-up in your clinic. During his one-month clinic follow-up, he is noted to be neutropenic, with an absolute neutrophil count of 0.8. The remainder of his cell lines are within, within normal range. The full blood count is repeated at two and four months and remains low at 0.6 and 0.7 respectively. In discussion with the haematology team, they suggest further investigations to explore the etiology and the persistent neutropenia. As part of these investigations, the granulocyte immunofluorescence test is positive for HNA1A specific granulocyte antibodies, suggesting autoimmune neutropenia of infancy. Alistair, how does this result link to the diagnosis of congenital enterovirus, if at all? I think making general comments is, is quite hard in this context because we've already discussed how rare this uh, presentation is. So saying what is expected and what isn't is is quite tricky. I think after any, I, I think one of the key messages that we want to bring across is that after such severe illness, when you're following up, it's key it's key to make sure you're making you're checking that all of the abnormal blood parameters do normalize. Um, don't forget, don't skip over any and just assume they're going to get better, especially if you've had severe cytopenias. So even though you're not a haematologist, keep an eye on those cytopenias and make sure that they do normalize. I think after such a critical illness, you do see relatively prolonged neutropenia sometimes, just secondary to any infection. Um, you have to think about uh, whether it's just a, a result of the, the hit to the bone marrow from the infection itself whether you gave any immunomodulatory therapy that then also had an impact on bone marrow recovery time. Um, or, as you've described in this case, whether there's, some, there's something slightly unusual that's happened that meant that there's ongoing cytopenia, in this case neutropenia, due to another process. And in this process, you explain that that's an auto autoimmune neutropenia. So, so, I, so I think that Autoimmune, I, I'm not a haematologist, I don't know a lot about autoimmune neutropenia, but I know that auto, autoimmunity can be triggered by pretty much any viral infection or, or intercurrent infectious illness. And so that would make sense to me that, uh, that after this illness, that could be one, one outcome in particular that you observe. I think there is some data that enterovirus itself can be associated with autoimmunity uh, a triggering autoimmunity so so that would make logical sense um, and again i would be speaking to my hematology colleagues earlier about whether whether and what management is needed or further investigations needed for it or whether a watchful waiting approach is is needed um so for me i think it would make sense that it could happen whether it's what you would usually see i don't think we see enough cases to to know that but um 
but yeah, it, I, I think we, we do see autoimmune neutropenia after various infections, be they congenital or acquired. Um, and so, yeah, it, it would be consistent with that. Um, I think in terms of management, from our point of view, it would depend how low the neutrophils were, whether we need to, to counsel the family about additional precautions if there was fever or intercurrent illness. And I'd seek, seek, seek advice from hematology colleagues on that as well, because um, the degree of neutropenia and the cause of the neutropenia can contribute to how cautious we are with managing febrile neutropenia in this context. Great, thank you. Um, and usually at the end of the episode, I just sort of open it up to see if there's anything that either of you wanted to mention again as a take-home point, or if there are other pearls or things that we didn't get to cover, but you wanted to make sure we mentioned before we wrap up. I mean, for me, I think there's any, it's the, the key learning point is any neonatal sepsis, it's our job to think about things that aren't bacterial neonatal sepsis that our neonatal, neonatal colleagues will be seeing three or four times a day, <laughs> then yeah. it's our job to think about what is the rare and unusual. Um, and I think the first line things that we've got to think about are viral, severe viral infections and also about congenital infections and having really good knowledge about how to test for those things in the most appropriate way, using the most appropriate specimens, thinking about what's present in your context. Um, also, something we didn't mention was thinking about what current is the current epidemiology of these types of infections so if you know there's an enterovirus current currently an outbreak of enterovirus in your region then that goes way up your list of a severe presentation of a neonate um so so yeah it's it's our job is to to think of the rare and unusual and just making sure that we we have a really good understanding of what tests to send and how and and, and what are the best samples to send them on is, is key to our our specialty i think yeah, I think for me that's my big learning point. Um, is about is about sending some different samples to test test for the same virus because at different points in the illness they will be positive in those different samples. Um, and I remember learning about that for HSV as well when I was on neonates to make sure we always did a buccal swab to look for PCR because I think that's the first place. Correct me if I'm wrong where it comes positive. Um, but remembering to do that with all other viruses as well, I think. And so sending those extra samples, I think that's a really good learning point for me. Thanks to Finn and Alistair for joining Febrile today. Remember, this is episode two of four for our Curious Condenal Conundrums part two. Don't forget to check out the website, febrilepodcast.com, where you will find the consult notes, our library of ID infographics, and a link to our merch store. Please reach out if you have any suggestions for future shows or want to be more involved with Febrile. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and I'll see you next week.